0: Turn to Matthew 7, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, for those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I know this text kind of sounds a little bit like it's just a group of loosely uh, strung together aphorisms or even truisms, but I think we're gonna see today that there's a lot more connection here than maybe it might appear to us at first read. Um, So to start with, uh, verse one has gotta be probably the most overused and improperly used bible verse maybe even maybe from the entire Bible um what are some ways that you guys have heard the world the world misuse this judge not that you not be judged and want to tell us some wrong answers come on Yeah, yeah, it's definitely used in the uh in the lgbtq arena a lot specifically for sure anyone got uh any other bad uses of this of this verse it's okay it's wrong answers only i swear <laughs> right like if you yeah, everyone's, everyone's right, everyone's got their own truth, what, what I believe is good for me, what you believe is good for you, you have no basis to judge me because you haven't lived the way that I've lived, right? You, you haven't lived my life, you don't have my experiences, you can't judge me. Well, that's, I mean, that's not really what we're talking about here. And I would say, especially since we've been talking about the issue of the Pharisees, we're talking about the issue of condemnation here. Um, this is a, uh, this is denouncing condemnation, but not discernment. We're called to discern. Uh, We're called to have a right judgment. Uh, The Pharisees were very good at judging according to their own ideas, their own philosophy, their own man-made traditions. And they were pronouncing people um, condemned or righteous only based on what they believed was the case. Let's remember, I mean, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being demon-possessed because of his actions. So obviously, uh, they were very into condemnation, and they did not have a right basis for condemning people. Uh, Let's let's turn quickly to John chapter 7. I'm going to get another helpful word here. John 7 verse 24. Again, another helpful word from Jesus from another of the Gospels. John seven twenty four. do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Pharisees were excellent at judging by appearances and in, in either saying that you were a righteous person based on how you looked or how you only outwardly acted and not how you believed in your heart, right? We've been talking about this in recent weeks. Um, but you're to judge with right judgment. Uh, Even in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul gives us advice that we must exercise discernment within the church. In fact, there's a manner of judgment to be executed within the church, right? Because we've all been saved by Christ. If we've given a profession that Jesus is our Lord and that he has forgiven our sins, then there is a life of obedience we're called to live. And we can help each other in that journey, we don't have to condemn each other. In fact, we should not condemn each other, right? We talk about this all the time. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're talking about discernment. And we're talking about helping our brothers and sisters in their walk. Uh, and perhaps that might come with a reproof at some point. Um, but if we're talking in the in the arena of condemnation, judging someone to tell them You're, uh, you are, you are not, you're not right, we know how to save you. And we're gonna see this in, in a second as we go through this passage, but you are a bad judge, right? We're not even called to be the judge, capital T, capital J, right? There is only one judge, uh, that is God. And he judges rightly. Uh, we can look at um, in the Psalms, Psalm 7. It would be interesting. Let's read uh, Psalm 7. Verses 6 through 8. Psalm 7. Verses 6 through 8. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. That judgment is not your judgment. You know there is appointed a final judgment at which God alone will be the judge. Um, and even though we know that we are sinful people, we know that sinful people are uh, are consigned to hell, right? Eternal punishment uh, for being an enemy of God. But it's premature to say that you you should uh, be experiencing that now, right? Uh, we should be instead preaching the gospel of grace in Christ. We should not be running around merely telling people, uh, you, are, you are bad. We need to remind people we are sinful. Yes, we are, uh, we are enemies of God, but we should be delivering the grace of Christ to people. The Lord is the final judge. Another Psalm is Psalm 98. Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 98, the last two verses of that psalm. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You will not. Left up to you, you would not judge the world with righteousness, because you're not righteous on your own. You need the righteousness of Christ. You would not judge the peoples with equity, because we're not equal. We are sinful. Uh, we're bent toward our own desires, our own wishes, our own uh, our own sins. So, if we make ourselves judge in place of God, we forget our own sinfulness and we forget the true justice, the, the enduring righteousness and justice of God. All right, back to, back to Matthew 7. So we've seen that God is the righteous judge. We should stay in our lane and give the message that we've been called to give, which is the gospel of good news, of the grace of Jesus Christ. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So this might be kind of a, just an interesting Historical side note, but the rabbis taught that God had two measures that he poured out at different times he had a measure of mercy and he had a measure of justice Jesus may have been maybe using that familiar paradigm when when talking about this um, but again this is this is kind of a little bit like the the golden rule that we 'll see uh, in a little bit with the judgment the uh, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So it makes sense that for us, whose righteous condemnation as sinners and enemies of God would bring the judgment that we have been judged with, which is the grace of Christ to others. With that measure, when we see people, yes, as sinners, but sinners who Christ came to redeem, we are judging rightly. We're not condemning we're highlighting the sin of people and magnifying the Savior who takes away those sins. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna jump into Romans here uh, for a couple segments that help on this, uh, on this judgment issue. Uh, Romans 2, verses one through four. We're gonna see here that Paul gives um, no quarter to those who would seek to be Uh, the judge to others romans 2 verses 1 through 4 therefore you have no excuse O man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So we can't be um, um, we can't be so free that we attempt to use the grace of Christ to tell people to continue to sin, right? We have to preach repentance and belief in Christ. We are sinful, and when we see the grace of Christ, it must lead us to repentance. That is the right judgment, because it sees us as we are, and it magnifies God as who he is. We are the great sinners. Christ is the great savior. Uh, Another one uh, as well, Romans 14. So just flip a few chapters forward. Romans 14 verses 10 through 13. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you? Why do you despise your brother? Look, those, those two things are linked together in Paul's mind to judge your brother and to despise your brother. It's a hateful, a hateful action. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So we see again, we have this judgment seat of God before which we will all stand and we would do well to reserve judgment, the final judgment to God on that last day for us now it's to tell of the grace of Christ. Now, thinking about judging here, I, I, when I was reading it and studying it myself, I was tending to think of this as judgment within our own hearts, within our mind, like an internal judgment of other people. We see something, we're like, ooh, ooh, yikes. You know, uh, that is a bad person, <laughs> I think we've all had that moment where we've seen somebody either looking a certain way or saying something or doing something. And we're like, ooh, that's a reprobate. Um, it's easy to do, right? That's the heart of the Pharisee, uh, but that's not right. That's not the right judgment. But let's look here in these next verses, and we're going to actually see rash judgment. If we've, if, we've if we've been judging in a rashful way internally within our minds, we're going to see rash judgment vocally. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we've already covered that you, you can't condemn your brother, right? You're not the judge. Here, you can't save your brother. You're not the savior. You're not the sin remover. You are a sinner. You cannot remove sins. You, ha- you have your own sins, and your brother has sins, your sister has sins. <clears throat> the Pharisees actually were the uh, epitome of looking past their own sins, this log in your eye, this, this two by four hanging out of your face to see the small speck of sawdust in their brother's eye. Wonder how much you could wonder how much it would cost to sell that two by four that comes out of your eye. I don't know. I think weird things. As Jesus says here, acting that way, talking that way, is hypocrisy. He says in verse 5, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take that speck out of your brother's eye. Well, who in this room has removed your own sins from yourself? (laughs) Uh, I'm glad to see no hands. Deputy sound guy, you don't count. (laughs) Nobody can remove their own sins, right? If we could, there'd be no need for a savior, but we cannot. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We can neither save ourselves nor save our brothers. So yes, you may very well have a log in your own eye, but God can remove that log. The grace of Christ, his forgiveness of sins, removes that log from your eye. That log does not count against you any longer. Your sins are uh, expiated would be the, a $5 theological term for that. They have been removed from you and placed on Christ on the cross. That log is no longer in your eye. But if we live a life of repentance, we are going to continue to recognize our sins as we go through our life of sanctification. And again, uh, that's not to say that we can't, as I said before, that we can't give reproof at times. If we notice a brother in sin, what are we called to do? We're called to speak to our brother in love. We're called to speak to our sister in love, come around them, pray for them. We have to seek the grace of God to even help our brothers and sisters in their life when it comes to the battle against sin. If we help each other mortify our sins, that's not an action of condemnation. That's actually what we're called to do, right? That's the essence of what Paul is even talking about, as I mentioned before in 1 Corinthians, to exercise judgment within the church. Um, the goal of the Christian life, part of it, uh, is to uh, to mortify our sins, to kill our sinful desires, to glorify our God, uh, because sin does not glorify God. So reproof is justified, but that's meant to repair or restore, but not to condemn. And it would be very foolish for us to imagine in our hearts that we have the ability or the authority to remove sins from others according to our own ideas, according to our own traditions, which is the heart of the Pharisee, the heart of the hypocrite. Um, The hypocrite, you know, the play actor, you know, the the actor that wears the mask in the play, right? The Pharisees, if we think about it this way, would just cover that log in their eye with a mask. They would pretend that they were righteous. They were showing they were self-righteous by doing that, but they would pretend they had it all together, that they had everything down pat, that everything was right in their heart when it was the opposite. That should not be the case for us. But we cannot save ourselves. So if we cannot condemn our brothers and sisters and hold them in judgment rashfully, we also cannot attempt to think that we can save them by our own thoughts or our own efforts. But again, this is another one that the world has twisted in much a similar way. How can you tell me that I've done something wrong because you do this other thing and they'll interpret whatever to be a log in your eye when whatever sin, whatever pet sin they have that they treasure and want to continue doing is merely a speck. So we have to to take sin seriously, but not in a condemning way, especially within the church. And in fact, actually, as we look through here to... Verse six, we see that we actually have some, an example of discernment right here. Verse six says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What in the world is Jesus talking about here, <laughs> right? What could that possibly mean? Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Jesus is not calling people animals. Okay, I'm just going to put that right out there right now. This is not a, a law about how to care for a farm, okay? People are not animals. There's something under the surface here. Biblically speaking, and I know this is, this is hard for us to hear, dogs were street animals. They were wild animals. So nobody in biblical times were, were taking little Fido into their home and giving him a bone after dinner you know (laughs) anything like that these were not pets dogs were not pets they were honestly they were pests a lot of times Uh, the towns considered dogs wild dogs as pests and dangerous and of course we could go on about pigs but we know from from the old testament that for the people of israel under the old covenant pigs were an unclean animal not only could you not eat pigs which is a Horrible idea in my mind. You couldn't eat pigs. It just crushes me to think about that. Um, You couldn't even touch pigs. That was why, like, if you think back about the, uh, the story of the prodigal son, and he goes to work with the pigs, that's like the worst thing under the law. Not only was he wallowing around with the pigs and feeding them, he was even eating their food. He was eating pig's food. So it was like the worst, grossest of kosher sins. Well, Jesus is saying here, and I got some help from some commentators on this, this is the danger of being undiscerning. I think we've all met people that when we've spoken about the gospel, we've, we've spoken and, and, and witnessed about Christ, either in our workplace or anywhere somewhere out in public, And there's just that rabid, hater of God, just absolute, um, full bore, I hate God and he doesn't even exist kind of person, right? One commentator noted on this passage that it's unwise to overextend oneself for those who viciously oppose the gospel. That's why in reference to the pigs, it says, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And I, that, was, that was, a hard, it was a hard consideration for me to make as I prepared for this. But I think it does make sense that our, our responsibility as people who've been redeemed, who've been given the gospel of grace, is to clearly, clearly communicate what Christ has done. This, to show the sinfulness of mankind, the greatness of God, the work of the cross, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, make that crystal clear and glorious and then leave it at that. You plant the seed and God gives the growth, right? From the parable. We plant the seeds, we make sure that we have said the truth, tell the truth of the gospel, tell the truth about man and let God handle the heart. Because again, like we just said before, you can't save anybody, right? I have no power to make that lost person believe. I have no power to make that person who so violently hates God, love God. That's just, that's not, that's not my department. As people might say, stay in your lane. We are to spread the seed. God will deal with the heart. So don't try to force that person who hates God, who um, is mad at you because of Christ, to believe, to force uh, a, a, a sinner's prayer out of that person Or whatever kind of tactic It's up to God to save And there, are, there will be some who believe And there will be some who do not believe But it's our job to merely spread the seed uh, Here's a couple helpful cross-references One is Proverbs 9-8 um, But we're actually, if we don't mind We will turn to read uh, Philippians 3, verse 2 Philippians 3.2, this is bringing in some of that animal language. I think this will help us see this a little clearer about the kind of person we're, we're looking at here. Philippians 3.2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So this, this type of person, this dog, this is an evildoer, This is someone who mutilates the flesh. This would have counted not only for the Judaizers at that time who did hate God. They hated the the full revelation of God. They wanted to hold on to the shadow of the law when the substance had come, when Christ had come to fulfill the law. All right, verse verse seven. Oh, well, let let me say one more thing about this, this matter of talking about the dogs. Okay, so there are, as we've seen there are people categorized as a dog, someone who viciously opposes the gospel. Let's let's remember, a dog isn't always a dog. A dog can be changed, right? We're talking about the forgiveness of sins. You think about the story of the Syrophoenician woman in Mark seven, um, where uh, she's speaking. She she has a need, and Jesus says it's not right to what to give the food of the children to the dogs. And what does she say? That Even the dogs under the table eat table scraps <laughs> that, that the children leave to fall to the floor. She had immense faith in Christ to do what needed to be done for her. That is not the action of a dog. <laughs> it is the action of a believer. So no one in our, in our mind should be beyond saving. Okay, to verse, verse seven. Another one that the world loves to use. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Anybody has anybody heard this used incorrectly or strangely by the world? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that was the big one in my mind. Whatever you want. You know, you want to be a millionaire? Ask and you'll receive it. You know, if you want that that brand new jet, uh, the fancy private jet, seek and you will find. Knock on the door and it will be open for you. Not the case. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you (laughs) if you hadn't heard that yet. That's not the case. Everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And To the one who knocks, it will be opened. A couple weeks ago, uh, the last time that we looked at uh, at some text together. Uh, we talked about the, um, the idea of, of importunity in prayer, uh, urgency in prayer. We have a desperate need uh, that we is just burdening us, and we come to God again and again and again in our prayers. Lord, help me with such and such heal heal this person that I love. Uh, I need help to make my bills. help me to you know, help me to, to get the essentials that I need. And that's, that's very good. Um, I, th- I think there's something, there's something deeper than even our, uh, our immediate needs uh, in this text. <clears throat> uh, I, I got a, a really nice quote on this uh, from the, uh, the Puritan William Perkins uh, in his book, Sermon in the Mount, which is excellent. It's free on monergism.com. You should, you should pick it up. Um, this is not sponsored by monergism.com. He makes great emphasis here on this repetition in both verse seven and verse eight. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Three, three repetitions of basically the same idea, right? Just with different words. Can anyone think of another time in Scripture that something very important has been repeated three times? Because there's one that jumps out to my mind, and I'm hoping maybe there might be a volunteer to read uh, Revelation 4 8. If there are any takers, Revelation 4 8. We're gonna hear something in this verse repeated three times for special emphasis. Anyone who's listened to about 10 minutes of R.C. Sproul is going to hear exactly what's going on. Holy, holy, holy. Um, That was something that really gripped me when I started listening to uh, Dr. Sproul's lectures and is the the holiness of God in this attempt, in this song in Revelation 4 to express God's holiness simply by repetition. It's one of the easiest ways to create emphasis in the written word is to repeat. Holy, holy, holy. Complete in holiness, right? Absolute holiness to say three times holy. Sometimes we'll even see lyrics in a hymn saying thrice holy, 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 holy. Well, uh, there's some emphasis coming here as well. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Looking at verse nine, Jesus is filling this out even more. So we've, we've seen, <clears throat> obviously we're asking for something important here uh, with the, 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 tr- the three repetitions. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus here recognizes the sinfulness of man's heart. You who are evil. But even depraved fathers know not to betray their children by giving them dangerous things when they've asked for good things. If they're hungry, asking for bread, you're going to give him a stone? Can't eat that. Try to chew that and break every tooth in your mouth. Or if he asks for a fish, mm, delicious, would give him a serpent instead, which would bite you and kill you. Even... Evil fathers don't go that far. So let alone God, our heavenly father, the greatest, how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? William Perkins says about this section, "Dost thou want any grace of God as faith, repentance, knowledge, zeal, patience, strength against temptation, or assurance of God's favor? Why ask and thou shalt have? Seek and thou shalt find. And this must be our course in outward wants and for temporal blessings, health, peace, liberty, plenty, etc. So there's lots of good things going on in here. God supplies our every need, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. That's from James 1. Our Heavenly Father gives us every good thing. In fact, that's why we when we looked at the Lord's Prayer, <clears throat> the model prayer. We ask, give us this day our daily bread, right? Every, everything, even down to those everyday needs come from God. And that's certainly covered in this text. But if we turn to Luke 11, we're gonna look at the, the parallel explanation of this uh, from Luke. We're gonna see um, quite a different gift than simply our daily bread uh, that we're asking for. So Luke 11 verses nine through 13. We're getting getting some help from our friend, Mr. Herman Nudix today. (laughs) We're gonna let the the text of scripture interpret scripture. Luke 11, nine through 13. And I tell you, ooh, that sounds familiar, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? That's awful. Awful to think about. Verse 13 then. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So yes, we're, we're to seek and ask and knock for the needs of our everyday life. But here's, here's a petition that God is always pleased to grant. It's always yes. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. I seek the, the closeness of the Holy Spirit. I need his help. The Holy Spirit himself is a gift. Uh, and uh, and he gives gifts. So not only is the Holy Spirit a gift, Jesus even calls him a gift. Um, and we see in Acts—you uh, don't have to turn there—but Acts two thirty-eight. It's made plain. Uh, Acts two thirty-eight. Peter said to them, he's preaching. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee, right? Those who repent and believe receive not only forgiveness of their sins, but receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. There would be some who might say that you have to wait to receive the Holy Spirit. You can repent and believe and then you have to receive the Holy Spirit at another time. That's not what Peter said. Repent and believe, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So no wonder that Jesus is repeating this three times: asking it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. This is a, an immense request. It is a huge, uh, a, a huge, unbelievable request. Um, I want to read for you as well: Hebrews two, three, and four. Verses three and four, I should say. I'm gonna read you three chapters of Hebrews and then we'll be done. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So not only is the Holy Spirit a gift himself, his indwelling presence with us is a great gift of God but the Holy Spirit himself also gives us gifts. I'm gonna give you a list, actually, of some of the gifts that, uh, that we see from the Holy Spirit in Scripture. In Luke 12.10, the Holy Spirit gives words to people who are facing literal trials, like before judges and magistrates. He gives the, the proper words to say before those human authorities to give glory to God and, and convey the allegiance of the Christian to God. Acts one eight, uh, he enables witnesses to go forth and witness in the world. In Acts one eight, Romans five five, this is a great one. Through the Holy Spirit, God's love is poured into our hearts. He is the vehicle through whom the love of God is poured into our hearts, as we believe. Romans fifteen thirteen, Romans fifteen verse thirteen, by His power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can abound in hope. That's a great gift. It's so easy to be hopeless in the world, right? Uh, it's, there's so many things that come against us and, and erode our hope, but through him, through his power, we can abound in hope. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. We have fellowship with God, with our heavenly father, with Christ, and then of course with the Holy Spirit himself through the Holy Spirit. So he brings us the gift of not only uh, communion with himself, but closeness, familial closeness with our Heavenly Father and with Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. This is a, a, a great one. We are sealed till the last day by the Holy Spirit. The mark of God is on us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the last day. And we can attest to that by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. By his gift, the gift of his presence, he then gives us the gift, the seal, the mark, right? The seal was a huge deal in the, in the biblical world. Uh, if you were to put your seal, like if the Roman emperor were to put, take his signet ring and put a seal on a document that guaranteed that the document would be authoritative. It had the mark of the emperor on it. Well, the mark of the king, the creator of the universe is on every believer and that mark is shown through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans eight twenty six uh, is where the Holy Spirit, we're told the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in our groanings when we can't come up with the words to pray as we ought to. We have the promise in Romans eight twenty six that he will help us. Uh, I know uh, that's been a great treasure to me personally. Um, in my during my uh, COVID illness, when I was so um, tired, um, could not think straight. All I could do was sleep. I had I didn't have the proper words to pray. And all I could do was just pray. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me to feel better. Help me to wake up. Um, and the Spirit helps us in our times of weakness. And then also Second Peter, chapter one, verse twenty-one. This is about the scripture that we study today, that there were men carried along and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down the words that we have and we actually study today. What a great uh, gift the scriptures are. Great and tremendous gift. So we see this unimaginable, uh, incomparable uh, benevolence from our God simply coming through the person of the Holy Spirit. So ask, and it will be given to you. If you need help, knock, and the door will be open. Ask the Lord, I need help. I need help. I need the, I I feel distant. Be close to me. The Holy Spirit is there. So following from the benevolence of our great God, our heavenly Father who gives the good gift and gives us gifts through him, uh, we see this golden rule Again, another scripture that the world loves to twist. Anyone want to take another wrong answer about how the world has misused this golden rule? Perhaps even calling it the golden rule. I mean, that that doesn't come from the text, but that's how we recognize it. I've heard the golden rule used uh, to support, um, again, it's all about me, right? I got to give to get, right? So if I want to be treated well, I better treat them well. It doesn't come from any sort of good place, right? We're sinful. We want what we want, and we love to manipulate to get what we want. The golden rule isn't about that. It's not about, um, in fact, it says, whatever you would have others do for you, do also to them. And that's usually where the world cuts it off, right? It's just a, a, a maxim, right? It's just a truism. Whatever you would have done to you, do to others, But they forget this last part, for this is the law and the prophets. The world ruins this statement by taking that away because they've divorced it from God's revelation. They've turned it into their own idea, their own philosophy, even. Many people have developed a philosophy based on words similar to this, but it's divorced from God's revelation. It's not you have to give in order to get, we give because we've been given. We forgive because we've been forgiven. It goes back again to talking about with the judgment you use, it will be judged uh, to you. We who have been given so much, we have been treated uh, immensely graciously by our Heavenly Father in receiving the grace of Christ, in receiving the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of an eternal life with our God. We have to show grace to others because that is what we've received. Turn to Matthew 22. We're going to read a couple verses. Verses 34 through 40. Remember we talked uh, about how Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. I would contend that here in this verse we're seeing him do that in real time because obviously Jesus knew the Bible. Uh, He We see in scripture, he grew in wisdom and stature. He studied, he memorized, he knew the word, he knew who he was. Um, And he uh, he had a mission, part of the mission, not only to forgive our sins, but to bring the new covenant. So Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Since the Holy Spirit is the, I'm contending, the common denominator of all of this, you have no ability to follow either of those commandments on your own. You will not obey the first commandment. You, in your sin, believe you are your own God. You are your own Lord. You will honor yourself. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, uh, in our salvation, we will not desire to keep that commandment, and we will not desire to keep the second commandment, which is like it, also like the golden rule. By the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, we cannot keep those commandments. We cannot keep from judging others based on our own ideas, our own man-made law. We will pretend that we are the Savior of ourselves and of our brothers and our sisters. And we will show kindness only in order to get it back. The Holy Spirit changes all of this. And yet we too often forget the Holy Spirit. So we need his help in order to follow this golden rule, this summation of the law and the prophets. Because if we don't have him, we don't see grace. And we can't show grace in a way to honor God. The Holy Spirit seeks to glorify Christ. And when we glorify Christ, he points us to the Father. That's the the goal of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is the goal of every gift that the Holy Spirit gives us is to glorify our triune God. And then finally, and quickly, enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. For those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I'm sure we could all agree that the world is full of gates that the world wants us to walk through. Gates, or uh, I would say, places, uh, things that the world believes will save us. Um, The gate of self-love. You know, if you love yourself, you embrace your story you will be saved, <laughs> essentially is what the world would say. They don't use those words, but, but it's the same concept. Um, there is one gate by which we, there is one name under heaven by which we can be saved, and that is Christ Jesus. Christ is the narrow gate. In the way that we walk, having gone through him, having been saved, having our sins forgiven, his righteousness given to us is a difficult road. It is a hard road. And you may at times look over and see the wide gates of the world, love yourself. These are easy things to walk through because these things accord with our own sins, right? These are things that we automatically enjoy doing. We enjoy pampering ourselves, believing ourselves to be good based on our own ideas. Uh, we are naturally self-righteous in our sin. Uh, these are, that's an easy gate to walk through. But what, when walking through that gate, what road are you on? Christ says you're on a road that leads to destruction. So enduring the difficulty of the way that follows, having passed through the narrow gate, having been saved by Christ and and be walking on the road of sanctification, on the difficult road of a Christian in a fallen world, is hard. But we must remember, again, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have his gifts given to us. We can abound in hope, like I said before. We can abound in hope. We have a God that we can trust. We have the true and living God. We have his mark on us and we have his help as we walk through the world and need not worry. Any questions or comments on any of this? How it all fits together? Any ambiguity about how great our God is? (laughs) I don't want to leave any ambiguity about how great and generous and wonderful and just that God is. Um, We who have had our sins forgiven, they're placed on Christ and Christ took the punishment for our sins. Yes, Right, They were, they were taking the, uh, the, the effects of the last judgment and going ahead and pronouncing them now. Right? They were saying, you are, uh, you are unrighteous. You, know, you are outside the covenant because you didn't wash your hands before you ate. Well, that was a man-made rule. Or because you healed a man on the Sabbath, well, obviously then you did that by the work of a demon. That, that is a last day kind of judgment. But again, like, and like you said, like reproving sin and showing uh, and walking through uh, the sin of our brothers and sisters, that's restorative. We're seeking their repentance. You know, we're, we're wanting to see them repent and, and grow in their faith rather than say, you're consigned to hell. It's over for you kind of a thing. And that was what the Pharisees were great at. And that's probably why they had so many disciples because they thought if we follow them, we follow what they tell me, then I'll avoid hell. And they were instead dishonoring God the entire time. Any other questions or comments? and that's an example of, of the right judgment that jesus talks about because as brothers <clears throat> we've agreed not only that that i see the work of christ in you and hopefully you see the work of christ in me and there's a life that we have been called to as christians so we, need, we have that basis that of, of uh, obedience to God that not only we've agreed upon, but we see as coming directly from God. So it's entirely right to do that within the church among brothers and sisters. The world hasn't agreed on that. You know, the world hates God. And so, it, you know, to a certain degree, yeah, it would be. It would be difficult to, and perhaps unfair to hold that, that, lo- that life of obedience to somebody who's never claimed Christ. They have to see their sin first, you know? Yeah, good comment. Anyone else, anyone else in the remaining minute we have? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the gift of your word. Thank you for this time that, that uh, we've set aside today to study together, uh, to come and worship together. Father, I uh, thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit and thank you for continuing to give us good gifts through him. I pray that we will earnestly walk with you, that we will seek you, we will seek righteousness that only comes through you, that we will seek the grace of Christ that we may show it to others. I pray that we would be satisfied in you alone and not attempt to, not attempt to uh, look for fame in the world, to look for the, uh, the, the good thoughts of others toward us. Um, all we need, all we look to is Christ. Um, we live by him. We live through him. You are the giver of every good thing we have. And I pray that we will never lose sight of that. I pray that you will continue to Revive us uh, when we have times of difficulty. Give us hope. Show us Christ. And continue the good work that you've begun in us as we glorify you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.